This is KMTT, Kimi Tzion, Tetzei Torah. And today the Shur in Parshat HaShavua. The Shur in Parshat HaShavua for Sefer Bamidbar, the entire Sefer Bamidbar, will be given by Harav Alex Israel. Hello Shavua Tov, this is Alex Israel, uh, speaking from Alon Shavutz. Uh, with this week we're going to talk about uh, Parshat Korach. And uh, certainly the Korach Rebellion is a very complicated affair. Even at first glance, when we look at the Korach Rebellion, which is an unbelievable upheaval in the camp, there appear to be several different factions and groups at, at, at work here. Let's just try and elaborate what I mean when I say that this thing is, is an upheaval in the camp. If you follow through the Parsha, you will notice that uh, it starts off with the initial approaches to Moshe and Aharon, which Moshe and Aaron uh, fall on their faces, and uh, they're challenged uh, by different groups. I'll elaborate in a second. Uh, we then see the um, the challenge of the of Datami Aviram, and eventually the people are swallowed up by the by the ground. After that, two hundred and fifty. Uh, people who bring the Ketorah are killed. But it doesn't end there, uh, because suddenly there is a, a plague, and Aaron has to save the people in the camp uh, by bringing the Ketorah actually outside the Migdash and bringing the Ketorah into the camp. And even after that, we have the case where uh, the staffs are put into the Migdash. Uh, the tribe of Levi has a particular staff, and it sprouts uh, forth with blossoms, and with uh, almonds. Now, after all of this, you'd think after various people being killed in the in the direct rebellion, the earth swallowing people up, people being killed by the Ketoret, people being killed by a plague, and others being saved by the Ketoret, further signs, you would think that the people would learn not to stir up trouble. But even after all of this, B'nai Israel says, Vayomru B'nai Israel, and I'm reading from the end of chapter 17, Vayomru B'nai Israel, and Moshe, Leimor, Hinga, Vanu, Avadnu, Kulanu, Avadnu. We're all dead, we're all goners. Kol ha-kareva, kareva la-mishkan, Hashem, Yamut. Ha-im tamnu ligvoa. Are we ever going to stop dying? There's a sense that this, um, this rebellion, this uh, mutiny, uh, this, uh, sense of upheaval in the camp is is it, it runs very very deep um, and the emotions here or there is a certain momentum which has been created a certain snowball effect that the Korach rebellion uh, once it gets off the ground it is very very difficult to put on the brakes and to stop uh, so that's something that we should realize uh, this is a story which uh, continues through the parsha. Uh, but what exactly are the the different factions? Again, as I said, there are multiple different factions. Even at the earliest Pasuk, we see on the one hand, Korach ben Yitzhar ben Kat ben Levi. We see Datam Ram from Ruvain. In addition, we see another 250 men. We see Nesia Eida, Kriye Moed, Anshe Shem. We wonder, do they all come with the same agenda? Well, they certainly don't. One group who come, uh, known by the name of Datam Aviram. And uh, again, if you want to look into this topic in more detail, the different factions, 
you can certainly look on 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 the VBM on the written Shirim um, Shirim by Rav Liptag uh, and by Rav Holland Samet uh, outline this very very beautifully. I will just give a very short uh, review of some. Um, the the Datan Aviram faction talk Tafka about the failure to reach Eretz Israel. They say, You took us out of a land of milk and honey so that you will bring us to kill us in this Midbar. Why do you seek to be our leader? You never brought us into a land of milk and honey. Have you given us our inheritance? We're not going to be summoned by you. And it's interesting that when he calls them, what they say is, What Datan Aviram focus on is uh, the failure of Moshe as national leader to uh, help the people to reach the national objective, Eretz Yisrael. Um, they say, uh, We will not go up, because you have not taken us up. You have not taken us up to the land that we're meant to. It's certainly interesting that Datan Aviram, who talk about this sort of vertical, directional thing, um, and they end off their speech with, uh, what happens to them is they're actually they go down instead of an aliyah. Uh, what happens to the, to them? It says they they go downwards. That's their punishment. They're one group. They are complaining about Moshe's leadership, uh, his failures in leadership. Uh, of course, it's not Moshe's fault, but uh, they view it that way. Um, another group are Bnei Levi. Moshe, a number of times. Uh, dresses a certain group Shimuna Bnei Levi if you look in Pasuk Chet um, there is a group of Levim who would like to be Kohanim it would seem that way he says to Bnei Levi you've already been separated from the nation you are the interface between God and the people and he says, You also want to be Kohanim. And it would appear that these people are given the test of the Ketoret, of the incense, to find out whether they are suitable uh, to be Kohanim, and they're proven that they're not. So we have groups of Levim complaining that they'd like to be Kohanim. We have groups of, uh, of people complaining about Moshe's leadership and the failure to come to Eretz Israel. This certainly is a motley crew. Uh, a whole bunch of people uh, who are sewn together in a single rebellion by a very masterful uh, Korach here. Um, it's quite something. But uh, I think what what I would like to do in our shir today is actually take our time to focus on a few quite incredible Midrashim which uh, animate the controversy between uh, Korach uh, and Moshe Rabbeinu or Moshe Naharon and focus upon key aspects of it. Uh, Midrash tells us frequently uh, stories, and those of us, and I include myself in this group, who are uh, adherents of Pshat, uh, those of us who are attentive to uh, the structure of the text, frequently are irritated by uh, Midrash, Midrashim with their fanciful, what seems like fiction. Uh, I've certainly uh, learned to appreciate Midrash in the way that it actually focuses on certain aspects of the texts, maybe even literary aspects of the text, which we wouldn't necessarily get through a simple pshat reading. 
And uh, here, uh, I hope we'll see the sensitivity of the um, of the midrash and the genius of midrash. Midrash finds its origin. If you speak to uh, most of the scholars of midrash, finds its origin in Eretz Israel, in the drashot, the public sermons of of Chazal, of the scholars of the first, second, third, fourth century. Um, and uh, these are are public addresses which uh, weave together many, many different strands of, of text and textual parallels, uh, resonances of, of language, all sorts of different uh, interplays of words and phrase and theme, uh, what we call drush. Um, and uh, through doing this, uh, through reading Midrashim, uh, we can certainly sometimes see... Um, holes in the text, uh, th- certain things which have been overlooked by the central uh, textual momentum uh, which the Midrash is able to pick up on. So, I thought this week we would maybe f- uh, concentrate on one or two Midrashim and uh, and dwell on their themes and dwell on their origins, etc, etc. So let's start with the first one. Uh, this one comes actually from Midrash Tehillim, so you wouldn't necessarily find it, and it's actually on the beginning of Tehillim um, where uh, Tilim talks about Ashrei Ha'ish, Ashrei Lo Halach Batzat Rashaim, Ovederach Ataim Lo Amad, and then it talks about of a Moshav Leitzim that uh, you weren't in the presence of Leitzim. Leitzim are clowns or possibly cynics, uh, people who entertain the, the the crowds, but they are empty and devoid of any real inner values, any inner life. And it says it over Moshav Leitzim Lo Yashav, if you, you, you should, you know, happy is the person who wasn't in the presence of of Leitzim. Um, so, what does the Midrash say here? So it's a, it's a fascinating Midrash. Over Moshav Leitzim, Ze Korach. This is the story of Korach Shahayam Itlotzet Al Moshe Ve'ala Haron. Korach would... Uh, make fun. He would mock Moshe and Aharon. Me'asa. What did he do? Kines kolagahal. He gathered everyone together. Shenemar vayekahel alehem korach et kolaida. He gathered everyone together. And what did he do? So he starts telling a a sob story, a a story about a poor widow. There was a widow who was in my neighborhood. She had two poor orphan girls. Um, and she had only a single field. She wanted to plough the field. Moshe said, You can't plough with a, with a ox and with a donkey. And she wanted to sow the, the, the field. Moshe be very careful not to plant species mixed together. The minute she had sown her crops, they'd grown, and she came to uh, reap them and make a, a pile of grain, uh, he says to her, Leave all of the donations to the poor, uh, which are due to, to, the, uh, to the needy, according to the halacha. She came to um, 
to uh, thresh the wheat and to make it into flour. And he says, okay, now's the time for Truma, the tithe for the Kohen, the tithe for the Levi, etc., etc. So uh, he tells this story about this woman who's trying to sow her field and make a, an honest living and is being uh, restricted and taxed at every stage. But he, he continues, he really takes this story to the end. Right, what does he say? She gave him everything, but she got sick of it. And so what did she do? She sells her field and takes two, uh, two sheep so that she will be able... Here he, You can hear the violins playing. So he, she can just have two sheep so she can uh, use the fleece to make clothing and enjoy the milk and the, and the animals who are born to the herd. The minute they gave birth, Aaron comes along and says... Give me the Bechorot, because God said to me, Any firstborns which are born to your crop, to, to, your, to your herd, belong to me. So what did she do? She gave him. It came to the time of shearing the sheep. He said, well, I get the first sheep shearing. She says, I can't stand this, this, this guy. I'm going, to, I'm going to shech them. I'm going to kill them and eat them. Um, and so what did he do? He comes along and he says, okay, well, if you're shechting them in the midbar, I get certain sections of the animal. And at the end, what she does is she gets so sick of him that she donates them to God. She donates them to the to the Bet Migdash. And he says, well, then they still belong to me because it says in Ban Midbar, chapter 18, verse 14, um, And the Midrash ends off and says, Aaron took them away. He left her crying, her and her two orphan girls. And, and, and Korach turned around to the crowd and he says, Look what he did to this poor lady. Uh, this is what they do. And, and they tie it to God. So, how do we deal with this Midrash? Where does it come from? What is this Midrash? So the first thing we have to understand is that the Midrash is certainly portraying Korach as an incredible orator, an incredible uh, motivator of crowds. Um, and here I think there is a, certain, a very, very deep insult, insight because uh, there is no way that Korach could have strung together a rebellion of this sort uh, as we see in the Psukim, again, with such uh, strength and such momentum without being an incredible leader, a person who really knew how to speak at public rallies, um, who really knew how to enthrall the crowds. Here, he uses a classic method which uh, is used nowadays in the news and by politicians of, you know, public interest stories, of finding the uh, story about the poor widow who can't make her, you know, can't manage to pay her basic food bills. Um, And he knows exactly how to manipulate the crowd. But this story could have been developed from anywhere. Where do they get these, these details? Um, where do they get them from? Well, if you look at the, the the tale that he tells here in Midrash Tehillim, there are definitely two or three dimensions to it. The first, obviously, is a certain mockery of Torah itself. I imagine that goes to, to, to in the direction of Moshe. A uh, second one is the mockery of the Matnot Kuhuna, the fact that there are certain gifts, in fact, a, a great number of gifts, 24 different types of uh, contributions or tithes, which are due to the Kohen, uh, the Kohanim and Levim, uh, the priestly classes, and those uh, rather extensive system of, of, of tithes 
um, are under attack here. Um, those that directed more at Aharon himself. We know the rebellion was against both, but the accusation I think which is leveled here is in the in the final line where they say uh, where he says his They're taking all this and they're uh, pinning it on God. They are uh, claiming that it is God who wants these things and not them. Uh, where again? Where is the textual basis to this? Uh, to these accusations, this midrash. Well, there's one very clear textual basis, and that's uh, a single line in the story of Korach in Perak Tetzayin. You'll find it in Perak Tetzayin, um, Pasuk uh, Tetvav. It says, Vayichar Moshe Ma'od. Moshe was very upset. Vayomer El Hashem. And he said to God, Al Tifen En Milchatam. Don't even turn to their prayers. Minchatam, it's not clear what exactly it means. Either their gifts, in other words, their kutoret, or maybe to their prayers. And he says, Lo echad mehem nasati. I never took one donkey from them. Echad mehem. I was never bad to any of them. Now the big question here is, was Moshe ever accused of this? I mean, we outlined the different groups before. We said there was a group of Bnei Levi who wanted to be Kohanim. They're not claiming any personal damage. Uh, there's the group of Datam Aviram who are accusing uh, Moshe as not having brought them to Eretz Yisrael. But nobody so far has claimed that Moshe has been putting money into his pockets, that he's been actually gaining personal benefit or you know, getting rich on the side. Why does Moshe in the middle of this turn round and say, Where does he get that idea from? Now, somebody must have accused him of this. And the Midrash is sensitive to this line, which seems to just hang there in mid-air. We don't understand who accused him or or why. And uh, the Midrash weaves an interesting story of an accusation that uh, Korach is making in one of his campaign speeches accusing of Moshe um, of of putting money into his own pockets. Now, this doesn't explain the entire Midrash, but if you do look at the structure of Parsha Korach, you will see that uh, the question of Maknot Kuna appears certainly to be central here. Uh, let me try and elaborate. I mean, all you need to really do is turn round, turn to chapter 18. Chapter 18 is an enumeration of all of the gifts. Well, I should say it maybe even more than that. It is a reinstatement of the special role of both Kohen and Levi. And it is an enumeration and uh, a very careful detailing of all the different gifts that uh, the Kuhuna and Leviah are meant to be receiving. In, in micro detail, it goes through the 24 Matlok Kuhuna um, and uh, reinforces them all. Now, obviously the question is, why do we need to hear about this right now? Um, what is the prompt that suddenly Sefer Palmibov should launch into yet another halachic discourse, the whole of chapter 18, uh, on this particular topic? And I think intuitively... We all do understand that there has been quite a severe attack on the role of the Kuhuna. I mean, earlier on in Parakut Zion, uh, we have the idea of 
the the firepans being um, overlaid over the mizbeach, livnei Israel as a sign for bnei Israel. Why zikaron livnei Israel leman asher lo yikrav ishzar asher lo mizera haron who lakatir katorat livnei Hashem. A reminder to bnei Israel that no person who is a non kohen who is not from the Zerah Haron, should come to bring the incense to God. Also, the sign of the staffs, the uh, staff which flowers, is again a reminder that, um, as it says here, God says, why are we going to do this? Um, Whoever I choose... His staff will flower. Again, the, the, the attack is on the question about whether Matelevi, the, the, the staff of Aharon, but really the tribe of Levi as a whole, have been chosen. This apparently came into question in a rather extreme way during this, uh, this rebellion, and therefore the uh, laws of the Matnok need to be reinstated later in the parsha. Indeed, um, I think uh, we will... Uh, something needs to be said on a global sense about uh, Sefer Bamidbar. Sefer Bamidbar interwe- interweaves narrative stories and uh, halachic parashiyot. And uh, the way I've always uh, been taught and the way I've always taught Sefer Bamidbar is that there is a close interrelationship between the halachic parashiyot and the stories. The halachic parashiyot come to supplement and come to enrich the stories. If we have a whole perak about Matnot Kuhuna, then the gifts of the Kohanim and Leviim must be at the central, uh, must be at a very central place in this entire rebellion. And this takes us right back to the Midrash. The Midrash is, is very sensitive that the Matnot Kuhuna are the central factor here. And when it comes along and claims that Korach is uh, using this widow, again, where the idea of the widow comes from is not entirely clear to me, but the fact that he is uh, here using a human interest story to highlight the fact that uh, there is some illegitimacy to Matlok Kuhuna, thereby undermining the very institution of the Kuhuna and the gifts which are due to them, moreover, accusing Moshe and Aharon of taking money into their own pockets. We see uh, a new strand of the story here, a very compelling strand uh, over here. Now, by the way, this is such a... It seems This seems to be an incredibly central... Even though I said it's only one pasuk. You only see it in a single pasuk, uh, the notion that uh, Moshe feels that his personal integrity has, integrity has been attacked. Um, as Again, I, I quoted the pasuk before, Peret Tet Zayin, Pasuk Tet Vav, Mehem Nasati Mehem, um, this clearly was such a central theme that Chazal uh, decided that this should indeed be the Haftarah as well. Uh, when you look at the Haftarah, the Haftarah is uh, of Parshat Korach, uh, deals with the establishment of the monarchy uh, in Shmuel Aleph Perak Yudbet. Uh, that's where the discussion takes place. And there, as Shmuel steps down as national leader to make way for uh, for a king, uh, he turns around and he says exactly exactly this line, the same thing. He says, Answer me before God and before his king, his anointed one. Did I take anybody's ox? 
The Khamar Milakakti. Did I take anyone's uh, donkey? Vet Mia Shakti. Who did I oppress? Emira Tsoti. Umyad Milakakti Kofer. Who did I take bribes from? Valime Naibova Shivlachem. In other words, um, Shmuel, who, again, in the story of uh, the establishment of a king, it has been proven that his sons did take bribes. Um, he is establishing his own uh, innocence, his clean track record, and uh, and that is an important thing for a leader. So clearly, uh, as I say, this if this is the central line, the line this line only comes up twice in Tanakh, once in Parshat Korach and once in Shmuel, and clearly this was the line that those who chose a Haftorah decided to focus on. This clearly is a very central feature in the in the in the in the parsha. Now, let me maybe add one thing before we go on to another midrash because I see our time is is getting uh, is getting short. But there was one fascinating comment here um, in the Hamek Davar, the Nitziv. Rashi says, Where do you get the idea of a donkey? So he says, I never took anybody's donkey. Even when I went from Midian to save the Jews in Egypt, and the text in Shemot chapter 4 tells us explicitly that he put his wife and sons on a donkey. I took a donkey on my own expense. I did not take a donkey on Bnei Israel's expense. After all, I could have taken business expenses from the account, but I didn't. So the Nitziv here makes a beautiful comment. Um, you know, here in Israel, we're in the middle of uh, a whole scandal with the Prime Minister as to whether uh, he took appropriate funds or not. It's a little close to home, this discussion. But the Nitziv says something amazing here in his Harachev Davar. He says... Uh, why does Rashi focus exactly on the donkey which brought him down to Egypt? And he says, uh, what about while he was in Egypt? So he says here um, something about public officials. He says, um, he doesn't say, Moshe Rabbeinu didn't say, that uh, when he ate in Egypt, uh, his food wasn't from public funds. He says, here you can prove that somebody who is constantly involved in public works, in public activities, activities on behalf of, of Klal Yisrael, he shouldn't be overly pious uh, and not eat meals on the public uh, expense. Why? Why? Says the Nitziv, if somebody is so in, has such integrity that he doesn't want to take anything from the community, if he's meant to be working for the, commu- for the community constantly, um, he will soon find himself taking time off from his communal work in order to earn money uh, for his own personal needs. And therefore, if a person is like Moshe in Egypt, working 24-7 round the clock for communal purposes... Um, he has to take money from the community in order to get through his basic expenses, but but not extras, not extras for his wife and children, because Moshe Rabbeinu obviously came, brought his family down to Egypt on a donkey. So he says, okay, you don't take expenses for your family, but for you to to to, to work, to to get a bite to eat, to get a cup of coffee, that you can do. 
the, the Nitziv is clearly grappling with the degree to which uh, a public official, a representative of Am Yisrael, has to have uh, this incredible integrity. And it's certainly uh, an interesting debate. Where is the line between legitimate expenses and uh, indulgence between uh, things which a public official should take in order to facilitate his successful working, and on the other hand, uh, making sure that there aren't any, uh, uh, there isn't any bribery or any um, money going missing. Um, so that's our first uh, midrash, and the first midrash particularly highlights the that 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 single pasuk, that strand which uh, where Moshe feels under attack his personal integrity under attack. But I'd like maybe to mention one further Midrash very, very, very quickly because it is such, uh, it's such fun and so interesting. It's a Midrash in the, in, in the Tanchuma where um, it says um, that, that it talks about Korach um, having to... Well, we'll talk about this. It says... Um, uh, when did all this start? At the time when God told Moshe, Take the Levim, the Tiartautam, the Kota Selehem, the Taharam, and this is what you should do in order to purify them. Haviru Tara Kol Besaram. Miyad asam oshekein de korach, hitzchilas chazer al kol Yisrael lo hayu makirimoto. Amrulo miyasach bechakach, amalehem Moshe asabikach. The midrash here talks about that the trigger, the thing which really irked Korach to the point where he decided to rebel, was actually the moment in which the Levim were appointed in Bamidbar chapter eight. What happened? What what irked him so? So here we have an absolutely beautiful uh, pun on the word Korach. Um, the Midrash says that the thing that Moshe had to do to them, as it says in Bamibah chapter 8, is part of the procedure of uh, dedicating the uh, Levium, as we read there, um, is that he was told to, uh, in Perek Chet Pasuk Zayin, chapter 8, verse 7, uh, to shave all of their bodily hair. Uh, that was part of the process of uh, cleansing them. They had to wash their clothes. They had to go to mikvah. But they also had to shave all their bodily hair. And uh, it says that he went around trying to talk to various people and nobody recognized him. He felt insulted. He felt stripped of his dignity. Now, where does this come from? So it comes from a fascinating place. It took me actually a w- many, many years till I realized what the root of this midrash was. And it's very, very simple. There are many places in the Torah where we look into the meaning of a word in order to understand it. Uh, so, for example, we'll have, I don't know, uh, Yaakov, because he was holding on to Esau's Akev, his, uh, his heel. So Yaakov comes from the word Akev. And Midrash uses this technique as well, Yiskash Esachah But there are many examples in Tanakh of people whose names come from a given event. Uh, Mo'av is Me'av, right? From, fa- from the father in the story of Lot. Here, with a little bit of playing with the vowels, Korach, Kufreish Chet, can also spell Kireach, bald. Um, 
And the Midrash wants to claim that it was the boldness of Korach, Vayikach Korach, he took his boldness, and it was this indignity of being uh, shaven, which uh, led him to be really frustrated by Moshe. Now, once again, this has a, a, a serious place. And if you want to look at this in a more pshat direction, it is actually the first comment of the Ibn Ezra here, where the Ibn Ezra relates to the fact that uh, the real thing which agitated the social uh, the social organization of the camp was indeed the dismantling of the Bechorim as a group and the appointment of the Levim. Zehadavar says the Ibn Ezra, Zehadavar Hayal Midbar Sinai, Kashenit Chalfu HaBechorim, Venivdelu HaLevim. It wasn't, as the Ramban says, the failure to reach out to Israel, the Miraglim, which led to Korach's rebellion. According to the Ibn Ezra, it was the Bechorim being switched with the Levim. Um, the people thought, the people suspected Moshe, that Moshe had done this in order to give extra prestige to his own tribe, to Levi. Suddenly, all the plum jobs were given to Bnei Kahat, his particular branch in the family. And the Levim were upset with him. Everybody was agitated. The Bechorim felt they had been demoted. All of Bnei Israel looked at Moshe and said, Hey, you've just promoted your own tribe. And even the Levim were upset because now the Levim had been put under under the leadership or the supervision of the Kohanim. Um, the Ibn Ezra here, and you can keep, read the, the, the opening paragraph of the Ibn Ezra to see this, ties the whole uh, rebellion with the uh, upheaval in the hierarchy and the social structure of the camp in the wake of the Bechorim, who, if we follow Rashi, had been the religious leaders until now, being replaced by the Levim. And of course, Korach is from Levi. Once again, we see a, a beautiful uh, Midrashic technique where it takes the word Korach, Kereach, he's bald, and says, well, where would his baldness come be? And it finds exactly the scene in which he would become bald. Dafka at the moment of uh, the appointment of the Levium, the, the, the procedure or the ceremony of dedication of the Levium. But even though this seems like a Midrashic curiosity and probably entertain the crowds in its in the, in, in the, the drasha, uh, given maybe, you know, 2,000 years ago in an ancient Bet Knesset, um, it's very close to the Pshat, um, and the Ibn Ezra certainly is one of our Pashtanim, um, that maybe this, and, and by the way, this connects with the previous Midrash. The previous Midrash was all about the, the role of the Kohanim, or the role of big, uh, of the Matnok Kuhuna, the gifts to the Kohanim. Um, here we see ourselves coming full circle. So what I've tried to suggest in in in, in in this week's shear, well, first of all, I've tried to vary our sources to learn a little bit of midrash um, for the midrashim to be able to uh, enlighten us both in terms of their entertainment value, which certainly they have, um, and uh, their technique, but also to see how the midrashim enlighten us and give us certain cues as to uh, where to look in the text or what to focus on in the text, points that we might not have noticed otherwise using the midrashic technique. Uh, suddenly flourish into new into new life, and we get uh, fresh angles and fresh perspectives on on a familiar story. 
Okay, we'll leave it there, and uh, Bezrat Hashem, you'll hear from me next week. Thank you.